when you have one and you're driving one, they're actually better for the consumer, not just for the, the climate impacts, but, you know, you don't have to bring it to the mechanic all the time. These are just easier to use. They're quieter. But the, the process of making them is really complex. This is Evan Halper, a business reporter at The Post. And he's here to help us make sense of this historic move toward electric cars. This is a major transition. I mean, you know, it's hard in history to find a transition that is this big and happening this quickly. I mean, you have one of the biggest industries in the world that needs to pivot off the same technology it's been using, you know, for decades and is moving into an entirely different technology. And the ripple effect of this industrial shift is massive and global. Just consider what goes into making the heart of the electric car, the battery. It just takes so many resources to make one of these batteries. I mean, you're talking about dozens of, of you know, minerals, you know, all kinds of materials that are tricky to source. And then it's not just getting those materials, but then they have to be processed. You know, there's refineries. It's just a, a huge, messy industrial network. And this major undertaking can have some surprising consequences. And, you know, if it's not done carefully with oversight, um, with accountability, you know, it's like any other big pivot in industrial history where you're talking about there can be a, a real serious human and environmental toll. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Chris Velasco, your guest host. It's Thursday, September 7th. As the world transitions to electric cars, states like California and New York are moving to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars over the next decade. Meanwhile, President Biden wants at least half of all new car sales to be electric by 2030. This is a huge moment, and it leaves the auto industry at, you know, a really serious inflection point. But this race to reduce our carbon footprint has some hidden tolls. This week, we're looking at what it takes to make an electric vehicle. We're traveling to some unexpected places and discovering the human, environmental, and geopolitical costs of this production line. And we're walking through how we, as consumers, can square all of this with the very real benefits these cars can have on the environment. On Tuesday, we heard about the hidden costs on workers in South Africa. Mining for manganese, a key mineral for electric car batteries. They don't mention if it's a danger. There's no signs the miner tells you it's dangerous. Nobody tell you about it. And yesterday, we went to Afghanistan, where we heard about the race for dominance over lithium. Would he potentially welcome, like, Chinese uh, investment? Today how regulators, advocates, and companies are responding to growing concerns over electric vehicle manufacturing. Evan, we've been diving into the electric vehicle industry this week, and we've heard from two places, South Africa and Afghanistan, about what's involved when it comes to supplying the raw materials needed for these cars, especially those batteries. And in a lot of ways, it kind of feels like the Wild West. There's a kind of a gold rush for these resources and not a lot of regulation, but that's just two places. Can you talk to us a bit about the geographic reach of the supply chain for electric vehicle batteries? Yeah, it is so vast. I mean, you know, we're talking about all of North America. It goes to, you know, Australia, where there's there's all kinds of mining there. It's it's in Africa, China, 
you know, ramping up of, of mining and processing of these materials and, and throughout Asia, you know, South America, lithium mines, um, you know, and then, of course, in, in the U.S., I mean, we're, we're trying to get into these industries that through globalization we, you know, sort of didn't want for a long period of time. And in terms of the reach, it goes even past all these continents. I mean, you know, there is a big fight over whether the deep seabed should be mined for nickel, manganese, and cobalt. Mining companies want to just send robots down to to what they say harvest. And marine biologists are saying this could be a disaster. And whether that mining will ultimately be allowed will have just major ecological implications for the planet. Let's dig a little more into what it actually takes to extract these minerals and and the people who perform that work. Earlier this week, The Post's Rachel Chasen told us about her reporting on manganese mines in South Africa. And she talked to mine workers who said they'd been poisoned by years of exposure to manganese in the form of this toxic, powdery black dust. One former miner she spoke to, his name is Dirk Euster, he said he's suffering from everything from memory loss to a loss of balance that basically means he can hardly walk straight anymore. He even said he was having trouble just managing day-to-day things, like opening a bottle of soda. I can't even open a soda bottle. You know those plastic cap soda bottles? I can't turn it open. I must take it to my wife so she can open it. So um, for 12 years, I'm sitting in this house. I can't move. I can't go out. Nowhere. So Dirk and people like him want accountability. Evan, how possible is it to make companies like Tesla and Chevy account for the health impact on miners like Dirk at the beginning of the supply chain? This is the question that, you know, everyone's struggling with is how can companies make these operations be more accountable? The companies themselves will say, you know, we only have so much control over these supply chains and it just goes through all these tiers and keeping control, you know, beyond the first or second tier is very challenging for the company, from the company's perspective. On the flip side, I think, you know, there's there's a growing feeling that regulators and among NGOs and even among many inside the industry that the companies are not using their influence the way they could and that the automakers need to get their hands more dirty and instead of just sort of telling that first-tier supplier, okay, you enforce our ethics code down the line, you know, they have these these statements, these auto companies do, that just have these very lofty goals and everything sounds great, but then they're just, they're not enforced. Why aren't they enforced? The reasons they're not enforced are, you know, obviously that it, it costs money. And if they start enforcing these things, they're worried they'll lose suppliers, lose access to some of these minerals. But they're probably also more worried that, you know, if they collectively start to enforce these policies more robustly, their profits will will start to dip. But it's just sort of a hard argument to make that it, it may raise the cost of a car a few dollars, you know, when, when you see what exactly is happening. It's, I mean, it's really, it's really horrific, and it's hard to imagine when you buy that Tesla, you know, which is marketed as, as like a car for your conscience, that people like that worker we just heard from are actually exploited to make these cars. So there are clear health concerns when it comes to workers along the supply chain and and some human rights issues at play as well. But the electric vehicle just kind of keeps plugging away at full speed. Can you tell us about the competition for resources here to make electric vehicles, particularly those batteries? There is concern that there's a limited amount of materials and we need to move fast to get control of them before 
our rivals get control of them. So China has done a really good job at locking down a lot of these resources. So there is this kind of like scramble to not let our rivals get control of these resources that our economy really will depend on. But on the other hand, mining is a is a really messy, dangerous process. So battery makers are looking for new technologies. You know, can you have a cobalt and nickel-free battery? Tesla is trying to do a lot with that. One company is making a battery that, you know, where its, where its main component, I, I believe, is sulfur, which is not hard to come by. They're just trying to make this battery run properly. So there's a lot of experimentation going on with, you know, alternative materials that don't create as much of an environmental and, and human impact. But until that happens, you know, we need to make 200 million more electric cars, you know, by the end of the decade. So you have to get at these resources and getting at them is messy. Speaking of getting at those resources, and you've already kind of pointed out the geopolitical ramifications here, but I'm wondering if we can just put like a finer point on that. Yesterday, we heard from Post reporter Jerry Shi about this kind of gold rush that's happening in Afghanistan because of hopes that people have for that country's untapped lithium reserves. And it does raise a lot of questions about relationships with the Taliban and China's influence. These are obviously entities that the U.S. has had kind of troubled, antagonistic relationships with. You know, how does that complicate electric vehicle production and sort of our interests along the way? Yeah, geopolitics are really complicating things in a number of ways. I mean, in the case of Afghanistan, you have, you know, these these companies from China that you know, are less constrained about how they operate and, and you know, the, the human rights consequences than American companies may be. But, you know, they're trying to lock down, um, you know, these huge reserves of, of lithium there. And when they do, you know, it, it, gives, it gives China an edge. Beyond that, I mean, in the United States, we just passed a couple of years ago, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act basically says anything that touches Xinjiang or is made in Xinjiang in any way is assumed to be using forced labor. That's because there's been extensive evidence that China has forced Uyghur people out of rural villages and into factory towns through what China calls labor transfers. There's a lot of evidence and witness testimony that exists that people were forced to go into these jobs. China doesn't even let auditors come in. So if you want to check out a company in Xinjiang and maybe talk to the workers to make sure that no one is working there against their will or feels like they've been forced to move there or coerced into working there, you can't. And so this has gotten some companies into quite a bit of, you know, at least public relations trouble. Like Volkswagen decided that they were going to open a plant in Xinjiang. I can assure you we do not have forced labor. We employ them directly in our joint venture. Can you be absolutely certain that none of your employees in that Xinjiang plant has been through a camp? I would say no company could ever make sure. We are the only thing that Amidst that criticism, the CEO of Volkswagen, Stefan Wernstein, was grilled by the BBC about their presence in Xinjiang. One prominent German politician described your company as a company without a conscience, complicit in upholding a totalitarian hell in Xinjiang. With comments like that, isn't it time to close that plant and leave? I would say leaving a plant um, is a serious decision. And uh, stepping away from a topic normally doesn't help. But we firmly believe on a global perspective in, in having in free trade and also doing business according to our ethnical and standards is also helping every country where we engaged it. Tesla's in the same place. It, you know, Elon Musk went to Xinjiang 
opened a Tesla showroom. Human rights activists were appalled, and it, you know, cost the company a lot in public relations. But because China has so much control over this industry, because they sell so many electric vehicles there, and companies are sort of staking their future on sales in China and getting access to resources in China, they're having to go along or they're trying to go along, you know, with some of the policies of the the Chinese government that their consumers in the United States may find appalling. Coming up, what car makers and U.S. officials say they're doing as electric vehicles face more scrutiny when it comes to human rights and the environment. We'll be right back. So as we heard in our last two episodes about electric vehicles, even just getting the materials for these batteries requires a massive amount of work. It's extractive mining. That includes open pit mines and creating those essentially involve creating vast pits in the ground, which obviously has some sort of toll on the environment. And they also involve people doing work that is pretty clearly physically harmful. But how do the electric vehicle companies all the way kind of on the other end of the supply chain address these concerns? And, and if they're not doing that, what do experts say about how they should be addressing them? So I've had a chance to talk to officials at, at various car companies about exactly what they're doing. And they express frustration that, that their efforts are not getting enough attention. They say they've got audits going on and, you know, they, they give me these lists of things that they're doing and they say, we're not getting credit for this. You're just writing about, you know, one mine or one situation or, you know, some company in, in Xinjiang that somehow crept into the supply chain. And there needs to be more focus on the, the monumental work the industry is doing and trying to get a hold on this. At the same time, they say, look, these supply chains are so big and complicated that it's just going to take a while. We've never had to take responsibility like this before. There's a lot of pressure on us. People point to the fashion industry and how they were sort of able to get their act together and stop using cotton from Xinjiang. It's, you know, they say this is not T-shirts we're selling here. These are huge, complicated undertakings. The flip side of that is, you know, if you look at the Senate Finance Committee is having hearings into this right now, um, particularly involving forced labor and where these companies are getting their materials. You know, and they've asked the companies very specific questions and the companies, you know, have told them, again, we have all these, you know, processes in place and we're doing all these things. Some of these companies say, we know the cobalt industry is a mess in Africa, but we have certified cobalt and we can assure you that our cobalt is not involved in any of that child labor and not involved in any of those other things. But, you know, there just isn't as much certified, clean, you know, responsibly sourced cobalt out there to match the amount that companies say that they're buying. And the question is, are companies just not looking as hard as they could because they don't want to? That is often the allegation. Or are these companies overwhelmed and they're doing as much as they possibly can, but this is just this is just going to take time. So if it's this easy to find sort of rights violations along the production line in a way, how do car makers sort of justify what they're doing? And are they sort of working towards a set standard? Like, we'll accept, you know, up to 5% of poorly sourced or questionably sourced materials. Like, how do they, how do they think about thresholds and what's doable and what's not? A lot of times that's confidential. So they will say, we're not going to name all the companies and we're not going to, we're only going to be so transparent. We'll tell you our first tier suppliers, maybe 
We're not going to give you a list of every supplier we have, but they'll say that's a trade secret. But they'll throw out all the names of these um, industry collaborations. Some of them are better than others. So um, the Initiative for Responsible Mining, that is a good one. That's the gold standard. There's probably 15 others, you know, with similar sounding names that are just sort of concocted by industry and don't really have buy-in from anyone independent. And, you know, they look good on the label. And I think consumers are often really confused. And so there's a place for regulators to step in, and they are stepping in. And this is the big fight that's happening now. And what about advocates? Like, for example, on the human rights side, what are they doing to put pressure on electric vehicle companies? So advocates are trying to nudge car makers in a direction toward, you know, more ethical production. And one way they're doing that is using, uh, you know, the shareholder proposals. Courtney Wicks, representing Investor Advocates for Social Justice, is here to present the proposal. And so at Tesla's annual meeting in May... Good afternoon, Tesla board members, management... A group of shareholder activists stepped forward with a bunch of research showing various problems with Tesla's supply chain, most specifically links to child labor in the cobalt mines in the the, um, Democratic Republic of Congo, and also links to suppliers that may be using forced labor in Xinjiang. Subsequently, an estimated 1.8 million people have been subject to state-imposed genocide, detention and internment camps, and forced labor in the Xinjiang Uyghur region. And the proposal said Tesla needs to have an independent investigation. Tesla, its board of directors and management team have a moral obligation to pursue ethical sourcing practices that do not rely on the lives of children or enslaved people. They need to, you know, not be doing the investigation themselves. They have to have some independent group come in and and really take a look at their supply chain and set transparency and accountability standards, uh, you know, that that are more robust than what Tesla is doing right now and be honest about what's going on with the supply chain because so much of it is opaque. We will now accept votes for, against, or to abstain for this proposal, but again, only for record holders or legal proxy holders. And the Tesla executive said, no, we have one of the most ethical companies in the country. You know, we want, when you drive a Tesla, as Elon Musk said, you need, you know, we want you to believe in it to your core and everything's fine and this is totally unnecessary. So the shareholder proposal was resoundingly defeated. (laughs) I just want to say I love you guys. But then Elon Musk got up after to give his sort of state of the company address, and he could have just ignored the shareholder proposal, but he felt a need to talk about it. And I heard a question raised about uh, cobalt mining. Um, And you know what? We We will do a third-party audit. So, so, in, in fact, we'll, we'll put a webcam on the mine. <laughs> and if, if anybody sees any children, please let us know. It was like an awkward joke, and it uh, it, it didn't you know didn't come off too well in the industry because it just it just seemed you know for something that's so serious, kind of flip. But what was also noticeable is that he just didn't even talk about China. It's very complicated for Tesla. They have staked the future of their company on sales in China, on producing in China. And he can't get sideways with, you know, the regime there. 
And so despite addressing what this activist said, he only addressed half of it, and he just didn't even talk about forced labor. You'll, you just don't hear Tesla talking about this. So Evan, one of the questions I've been sitting with for the last few days is just looking at this situation more broadly. There's potential for people at the beginning of the supply chain to retrieving these materials, facing health problems. There are companies that are in some situations underreporting or, or not disclosing questionable sources of materials. There are car makers at the other end who clearly just want to capture this moment and sell as many electric cars as they can. But with all of that in mind, is there a way to realistically meet the demand for electric cars ethically? There's definitely ways to do it much more ethically than it's being done now. You know, will it ever be perfect? You know, of course not. But there's so much room for improvement and there's so many things that could be done. Again, if the automakers take more responsibility, you know, if the regulators get more engaged in this, I mean, I think it's it's like any industry. It's going to have an environmental, it's going to have a, a human rights, a workers' rights impact. But does it need to be like it is now where, you know, we're just seeing these horror story after horror story of people who work in these supply chains? I don't think it does. It still seems like we really have a lot to come to grips with when it comes to the making of electric cars. And I'm curious, you know, as we zoom out, how do you look at this kind of industrial moment compared to other big ones? And I think, lastly, more broadly, like, does the argument that these vehicles are greener than a traditional car with an internal combustion engine, is that enough of a net good that it sort of wins out over the other consequences that come with making the cars in the first place? So I think that in terms of comparing these to a traditional car, the internal combustion engine, you know, we often forget that those cars also have these same supply chain problems. I mean, you know, maybe not the cobalt, maybe not the minerals, but the making of those cars is an ugly process also. And so is, you know, are, are sort of the, the problems that go into making EVs so much worse that I would say don't even buy an EV? Absolutely not. That should not be the takeaway from any of the reporting, you know, in this series, which I know is called um, Clean Cars Hidden Toll. I mean, there is a toll. There is a toll also to, um, you know, internal combustion engine cars and the production of those. I think where people get confused is that, you know, there's just this assumption that because these cars are clean, their market is clean, you know, there's there's all of this marketing material around them that it's just assumed that everything about them is ethical. And that's just not the case, at least not yet. And so we're doing this accountability reporting to, you know, hopefully push some changes that will make these cars actually live up to their, their ethical marketing. And, you know, after all this, I mean, I, I should be clear, like, you know, when I'm going to buy a car and I'm thinking about these things, even after everything I've seen, it makes sense to me to be driving an electric vehicle, um, understanding everything we do about emissions, about climate. But we need to fix these things in these supply chains. And I think a lot of these things are fixable. Clearly, a lot of work still yet to be done by all of us. But in the meantime, Evan, thank you so much for explaining all of that to me. Absolutely. Thank you for all the great questions. Evan Halper is a business reporter covering the energy transition for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. We had help from Alana Gordon, Alan Cypress, and Sundia Soma Shaker. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. 
If you want to show your support for the kind of reporting you heard today, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe to learn more. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.